I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. When today's guest walks into a room, the wave of positive energy that comes with him is palpable. Wasi Mohammed is the former executive director of the Islamic Center of Pittsburgh and the current director of community entrepreneurship with Forward Cities. He has deservedly been called a 24 hours a day bridge builder, and he came to national prominence in the wake of the Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh last year, when the bridges he joined in building helped a devastated community find its way to a new hope, strength, and solace. Wasi, thank you for being here. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. There are a million things I want to ask you because of the various roles that you've played in the community in recent years and especially in recent months. But let's start with how many people in the larger community and across the country came to know you all of a sudden. It was through a speech you gave in the aftermath of the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue. You were then head of the Islamic Center of Pittsburgh and you immediately stepped up. We find that Muslims are required to stand up against injustice and specifically for our Jewish brothers and sisters. And it is because of these prophetic traditions that we decided to do something for our Jewish brothers and sisters. We realized that it's such a tragic time. These, these are our brothers and sisters. These are family. Money should not be an issue. That should not be a concern, paying for a funeral or paying for medical costs. The Muslim community we started to raise some money. And since yesterday afternoon, uh, we've been able to raise over $70,000 for the community. As I understand it now, you've actually increased the amount raised through that effort to over $250,000. You had 60,000 shares on Twitter. It was an extraordinary statement of solidarity in the wake of a tragedy. What inspired you to do that in that moment? So uh, what I think it's important to, when I reflect on it to really remember is that it wasn't like an inspiration. It's kind of like when something happens to your family member, you just have to react. It's not like it's a stranger and we want to help that stranger. We've been building these family ties for a long time. And then this is just a response because we're already so close. We wanted to make sure that everybody would remember the light and not the darkness. All the great things that happened, this horrible situation led to a beautiful response from a community. And then when I have Jewish community members come up to me today and say, what I remember about that day is you standing up on stage or what the Muslim community did or what my Muslim neighbor said to me. Lots of people cannot even remember the name of the shooter. That's what we wanted. We wanted people right. to remember the right. light, not the darkness. This was a hate crime, though, and right. it was all about differentiating and attacking other people. Was there thought at all about solidarity among people who are targets for hate crimes? Yeah, you know, that was part of it. I think we have an ability to understand what that community is going through more than a lot of communities can do. But I feel like no matter what community it was or whatever our community is going through, I'd like to think we would have responded similarly. I saw a lot of people from communities that weren't as impacted by this kind of hatred, you know, that come from communities that are largely attributed to having that hatred, right? These far-right Christian groups, you know, but they were standing, all of us were together, we all showed up together. I think it's important to note that, yes, we have a special understanding of that pain, and we stood up and we understand them because of it, but I think that all of Pittsburgh came together, and that was a really beautiful thing, so. Is there something in the Quran or in the in Muslim tradition that 
led you in the direction of building those bridges in the years prior to the tragedy? Yeah. There's a hadith from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that there was a funeral procession going by, and he was standing up in reverence to that procession. And then his followers said that, well, that's a Jewish person's funeral. It's not one of ours. And then his response is that, you know, was he not a human? You know, like, was he not one of our brothers and sisters in humanity? And then that forced everybody to stand up, and that set a precedent for the community. There's in the scripture, you know, in the Quran, Surah Al-Fusilat, that says, respond to evil, you know, with light and goodness in order to drown it out. And then there's other responses. There's in the Quran that tells us to actually stand in front of and protect houses of worship of non-Muslims. That's in the scripture because mm-hmm. we're a tradition that came after Christianity, after Judaism. Mm-hmm. So then we specifically mention Jews and Christians, monasteries and churches and synagogues to stand out and protect them and do not let anybody, when a Muslim's there and able to protect those synagogues for anybody within them or any of the structures that come to harm. So it's all within our tradition to do this. You're a young guy. And so when you started at the Islamic Center, you were how old? 22. 22. Did you have elders advising you or was this just something that was in your heart? So elders were helpful. I had some great mentors, uh, Omar Slater, Clifton Slater. My parents were really influential. But I'd say that if you grew up in this kind of post-9-11 era, I was grew up in central Pennsylvania. Yeah. You have to grow up relatively quickly. Building bridges was such a crucial part of what we need to do to move forward within our community, from our community to other communities. So then that became the mantra you know, that we started with. So. Can you say a little bit more? I'm intrigued by something you said about having to grow up very quickly when you grow up in central Pennsylvania. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? So being like Muslim, brown, and in central PA post 9-11, right? It's like night and day, everybody can remember the before and after, right? If you're forced to understand concepts that other people don't have to tackle until later in life, like our house was vandalized, we had consistent threats, we had other issues in schools that we've had to deal with with my Mm -hmm. family. It was a consistent thing. And plus what you heard on TV, what you heard politicians say, reputable leaders say things about our community. We're like, where is this coming from? Mm -hmm. It was, I remember we had an escalation that happened to our house. Like we had um, mustard packets that was thrown, then we had paintballs at our house, and then kept going. And, and you were going. how old at this time? Probably like 10, no. 11. Yeah. And at first, we didn't exactly get while we were targeted. And then finally, it escalated to a point where there was like a stick of dynamite or some explosive that was put in our mailbox. And then that shot into our garage. I had a friend come over, and that friend was furious. He was like about five years older than us. He wanted to immediately hit the streets and do something, right? And I, I we were like, well, why are you freaking out, man? Like, you know, what's the big <laughs> yeah, deal? Yeah. And he was just furious. Like, don't you understand why they're doing this to you? I just really clicked to me at that point. And then how to respond. My response is actually, I wanted to be better than everybody. So yeah. I wanted to be class president, you know, valedictorian, right. captain of the football team, basketball team, everything. So like people reacted differently, but you had to react and it changed who you were right. at a very young age. No matter what. No matter what. Tackling these questions at a really young age allowed me to prepare myself for leadership, which I was ill-prepared, to be honest, Mm. at 22, and then even today to, to lead a community. Your CV through that time reads like every parent's dream for their child. You know, let me get this right. A letterman in football, basketball, track and field. You were an academic star. You were class president. You were and became a community leader. You have degrees in neuroscience history and philosophy of science and religious studies. You could have done anything. What has drawn you into this career of public service? 
That's interesting because when I was younger, I definitely took the path that I felt like could lead me to a level of excellence that everybody appreciated, right? But I was being pulled in a direction that everybody around me wanted me to explore. I just kind of took leadership in spaces that needed leadership in in very difficult times. I wanted to be there with my community, right? Like I understood what was happening. I don't know what this means for a larger path. Before I was very specific. I did these things. I scored high on these tests. I did this. I wanted to get a very particular path towards excellence. And now it's all over the place and I'm just kind of waiting to see where I'm called. And I think that a lot of people do feel like still I get constant reminders like I'm wasting my potential go back to school. I studied neuroscience. I'm supposed to be in med school right now. (laughs) How do your parents feel about this if they're listening i'm still gonna go <laughs> you know? so I fabulous still, i still haven't decided you know, uh, so. which i think is sad it's a sad yeah. comment about what we value in our society yeah. let me just tell you that the role you're playing is of tremendous value but people want more for you so that's you can't fault them for that yeah, you know it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. coming back to the events around tree of life and subsequently months later the jewish community here responded in kind when an attacker killed dozens of people in Christchurch, New mm. Zealand, for being Muslim and for attending Islamic services. How did that feel that, to see the Jewish community respond the way that they did here? Yeah, I had no doubt that was going to happen. And they were there for weeks on Friday prayers after the event, not just the so day. So it wasn't of, just raising money or no, anything like no, that, which they, were, they did. Yeah, but they, they did. Yeah, but they're outside with signs. They're yeah. sending us letters. They're sending us messages, reaching out to their Muslim yeah. neighbors, and understanding how connected these things are really highlighted in New Zealand. The shooter kind of GoPro'd the whole thing, which yes, is horrible. Yeah. On the weapons that he had, he wrote names of other shooters who shot Muslims in other areas. And in his manifesto, he cited incidents like Pittsburgh, and he cited our president, you know, and all this rhetoric. And then he proved what we've been saying, that this is something that is hurtful for all of us. And then us standing together is required. We did it out of love for each other. But now we're really understanding that we need to become coordinated in our fight against this growing problem. And it is growing. Sadly, one of the alleged motivations for the attacks in Sri Lanka was revenge for the attacks that had happened in New Zealand. Is it discouraging for you to see that cycle going on or are you just focused on disrupting it? I think I'm focused on disrupting it. At the Islamic Center, we have over 50 nationalities. Mm-hmm. Just at the center, speak over 30 languages. We, we do a lot of interfaith. We, we work with Buddhist and Hindu communities and Christian and Jewish communities and everything in between. And we've realized that these narratives, no matter how horrible they are modern day, are so consistent in history. And mm-hmm. it's like a never-ending cycle that we will, you know, like everybody will be blind. You know, that concept in eye right. for an eye. So we realize that there has to be something more than this, you know, that right. we have to be able to fix this in some way. So we're focused on the solution to that. And then we want to pray with the communities that lose people. But we know, unfortunately, that the list of places and places of worship in particular are going to keep growing. But what we need to do is at the same time grow movement to ensure that there's solidarity in removing the reasons for these attacks to happen. Speaking about things that are cyclical, you've spoken about what you call in our country, our country's wheel of oppression. 
I think you're getting at a similar idea there. Can you explain what you mean by the wheel of oppression and how it affects folks like you? As Muslims, we are currently experiencing the oppression of our minority community, but throughout our history, whether it's Japanese internment, Native American boarding schools, Chinese Exclusion Act, all the things that happen to Native Americans in the black community, there's consistently this concept of you pick a minority, you blame them for society's problems, you treat them terribly, mm. and then you make the whole focus on them and it's their fault. Right. You know, while the general establishment gets to avoid talking about infrastructure, you avoid jobs, you don't avoid their main issues. And then when a community, you know, either gets enough power to move past that and stop being, you know, like victimized because they've insulated or they've achieved whiteness, which is a complicated conversation, but they're now part of that group that can pick on the next group that comes, like an American hazing process. The wheel turns and you move on. And as Muslims, one of the most hated groups in America right now, widely, if we're at the bottom of this wheel, I don't want to focus on spinning the wheel because very easily we could do mm. anything we can to make people stop focusing on us. But I want people to look at our situation and look at the exact playbook used to demonize our community that was used on all these other communities. And let's realize that that can't trick us anymore. We cannot allow these things to distract us from the real problems that our society faces, and that will make us stronger if we start focusing on the real issues as opposed to being distracted generation after generation right. about issues that are not the real issue. That concept of not just having the wheel spin so that some other group falls under the weight of it yeah. is a beautiful thought. Is awareness enough to stop that from happening, do you think? Awareness helps, but in reality, we also need to better understand the playbook used. Be able to like throw uh, a wrench in those gears that produce mm -hmm. this entire cycle. So let's be strategic. Let's study it. Let's understand the problem. And then let's be in a coalition. I think 99% of America is harmed by this, not just the minority communities. You know, I think all of us are hurt by it. So mm -hmm. we need to all come together. Because it creates a toxic environment for all of us, including people who... I think often see themselves as exempt, let's say in this case, white Christians. Mm -hmm. Aside from the fact that it should be part of their religion, yeah. why should they care, though? I, I'd like to use this example because it's clear. If you know what Sharia law is, you of know what like the concept. Yeah. So there is this movement for anti-Sharia legislation. Sharia tells us in a country like America that's not a Muslim-majority country that we need to follow the law of the land. Mm -hmm. So that's simple. But there's this anti-Sharia movement by politicians. You can't do that, right? right? So like already religious law cannot be the law of the land in America. Right. So why introduce this redundant you know, legislation? Because right. not once since all of them been passed in like 20 states or whatever, not once has it ever been used in court. They did it because they get column inches, they mm. get TV time, they get donors. They're strong on the worst issue that a lot of Americans feel like we're facing is it's rising Islamophobia, when in reality... They've done nothing for their community. They've made nobody safer. They've made us less safe. And they've distracted everybody from infrastructure, you know, from jobs, from the environment, from real, real problems. So they've, they've leveraged and fed the fear and yeah. suspicion that is out there. And it's been for, for their own benefit. Yeah. So at this point in American history, unfortunately, we've got a lot of perceived enemies. Yeah. And yeah. absolutely... Muslims are squarely in the target for that. And we're clearly the target of one example of this, which is the Trump administration's travel ban, mm -hmm. which you have been 
a very vocal opponent of. Talk about the ways in which this administration is targeting Muslims and how that affects you. I mean, first, I always explain that it is a Muslim ban. You know, like some mm-hmm. people try to differentiate it, say it's a travel ban. But in campaign speeches that are recorded, right, he says, mm-hmm. I want to ban all Muslims coming to this country. He asked Giuliani, who admitted that on TV and other, you know, experts in his administration, how can I make this legal? It's The math is very simple on that. It's it's a targeted towards the Muslim community, mm-hmm. which a lot of his supporters are happy with, right? That's what they wanted. And they're happy that he came up with a loophole to do it legally. Call it what it is, I think is really important. But the other thing is that... It's harmful, you know, to like who we are as a country, Mm -hmm. right? We've always been a country of immigrants. We've always grown from waves of it. We've always benefited from new cultures coming and infusing and adding to our American identity. This prevents that from happening. And it doesn't really make us safer because if you look at acts of terrorism, you know, in American soil, almost all of them are committed by white supremacists or white, you know, anti-nationalists or whatever you want to call them. That's the real threat that's growing and rising, you know, but this is just another way to distract the American public. Public. And then we're, we're really showing the rest of the world who we are, mm. you know, in terms of are we still that place that welcomes immigrants and refugees and, and we allow them to come here and then we understand because it's mutually beneficial, which is a beautiful concept mm-hmm. that the U.S. was such a leader in throughout history. And now we're going to lose that to other countries because they're acting like these people can't go elsewhere. Well, I had somebody call the center and say, I'm considering taking a Ph.D. at CMU. I got accepted, but I don't trust it. I'm looking at the election and the environment. And I said, hey, it's it pits is a, is a special place, you know, like we could talk more about it, let me know. And then we started a dialogue and then the election happened and then that's it, you know. And like, the person didn't come. Didn't come and never responded. We live in such divided times. Although we're increasingly a diverse population, a significant chunk of this country lives in places that are not diverse mm-hmm. and lives in places where there isn't a whole lot of exposure to people who are different. How do you find it in yourself to talk to people like that? Or do you? Are you trying to persuade a different audience? Each year since I started at the center, I've increasingly tried to spend more time outside of the city limits as far as I can go to ensure that I talk to this audience who's likely never met a Muslim, right? Mm. I want to speak to them, and I want to understand where they're coming from. I did grow up in central Pennsylvania. You know, I understand in general how a lot of them grew up. I understand where this stuff comes from. But the reason I'm so motivated to consistently do that the rest of my life is that my religion says that those feelings of fear and hatred and everything that keeps us apart are kind of like diseases of the heart. Mm. You know, like I see them as, as much in pain as the people that they are persecuting because of all all of the media that they're consuming, they're literally afraid of us. You know, like that took me time to really understand that, that it's not just rhetoric, that they are scared of us invading the country, taking it over, all these things. That's a horrible thing to sit with. I would do anything I can to kind of take that fear away, you know, so they can heal. Because living in a state of constant fear is crazy. Mm -hmm. So then if that's the motivation, I have to be committed as much as I am to prevent the discrimination of my own community to ensuring that they remove this disease of their heart. And I get people say that it's not my job, but I don't want them to go through that, you know? So like, and I want to keep our community safe, so I'm committed to it. It's not what I want to do on my weekends, but, you know, I'll do it. (laughs) Do you find that non-Muslim Americans get it when you talk to them about that? 
It depends. You know, I've learned this from like a Muslim scholar. Interesting. He says that sometimes people's hearts are open, you know, to have mm-hmm. a conversation. Sometimes there's not. Right. In one on one conversations, I largely find people's hearts to be open. Yeah. Right. But when people are coming in order to dismiss everything that I want to say, there's not much I can do. Like there's a lot. We have the most hate groups, I think, in the country in PA. You yeah, know, we've, we've got a Unfortunately, we've got a ton. Yeah. Yeah. So one of them in particular, you know, cited me and then have done it several times. And, and one in particular said that I was practicing something called taqiyya. They, they kind of take these Arabic words and try to make these concepts. And they make up meanings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they make up these like, you know, understandings of it that that one in particular is really damaging to the Muslim community. Because what it says is that whenever they have somebody who can speak English well and is likable, they put them up there and they will lie to you until you like them. Right. So everything that they say is a lie in order for you to like the religion of Islam. So eventually they can take over. So once you put that out there, <laughs> there's nothing I can say yeah. to make you like come to my side. Right. You can't ever engage with that. And I think that the large majority of Americans will not accept that. I right. really truly believe that. But I do believe that there is a percentage that is going to stick to that and hold to that. And I'll pray for that percentage because I think it's really harmful to who they are, to their soul. And it's negative. But I don't know if I'll be able to reach everybody. Yeah. But my calling lies in the effort. I, I, um, I love that your heart is big enough that you would say that you would pray for those folks and that you wish better for them because it is truly toxic for their own is. lives. They're yeah. destroying their own lives mm-hmm. by believing that. And once we enshrine the idea Idea that a whole group of people are just liars and out yeah. to get us, and we have baked the fear and hatred in forever. In many ways, this is a perfect embodiment of a way in which you've been characterized, which is as a 24-hour-a-day bridge builder. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of that characterization? You know, I haven't been able to escape the, the bridge analogy. <laughs> no. you know? Well, it's Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah, we know? always refer to bridges. It's funny because since when I was younger, the bridge builder thing was always a thing. And then I moved to Pittsburgh, the city of bridges. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, goodness. I strive to earn the title, right? I feel like it's been attributed, but I don't think I've earned it. You know, bridges can be built, but I think the, the real heroes are the people who maintain them. You know, they mm. don't get the praise, right? So yeah. if I leave... To, and, and I get praised for building a bridge and I do nothing to maintain it, that's not praiseworthy, right? So mm-hmm. then I think to me it's a call to action for the rest of my life to understand the value of these bridges that will connect us, learn how to build them on the right principles and the right foundation so that these bridges can take us into the future. So Such a neat distinction. I got this question once when I had delivered a speech to a group and one of the people in the audience asked me afterwards, I really struggle with this concept of being a bridge builder and loving people who are different than me. And he said, how do I engage with somebody who hates me? I always frame it first. Islam taught me that it's never the, the, the seed, it's the soil. At birth, our hearts are pure, you know, like, mm. and then if the soil around us is poisonous, then we grow up poisoned. Mm. And we can see that within Muslims around the world, Christians around the world, anybody can grow up in terrible soil and make terrible decisions, Mm. right? It doesn't matter what religion you're born with or what you choose to accept. What you're trying to do is heal that. Hatred is often not deep-rooted, right? A lot of people hate Muslims. It's a high percentage. But the people who have met at least one Muslim in the country, you know, and they did poll Republicans just to check that know a Muslim, you know, like 40% less likely to dislike Muslims in general. If they know one Muslim. They know one Muslim. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it. So if those two things are in your mind, you have more patience for somebody. You have Mm -hmm. more sabr, you know, like in the tradition. What what do you say to people who, and I hear this a lot too, who say, look, I hear you, but it's not my job to persuade bigots not to hate me. Yeah. And I think there is 
a whole lot of understandable weariness yeah. with having to tell people what it's like to be Muslim or yeah. what it's like to be black. But what you're asking for them to do is do that anyway. And, mm. and how do you make that case? Some people are called to do this work. Mm. You know, like um, one of my favorite poets, um, Hafiz, you know, always says that sometimes I say to a poem, uh, not now, can't you see I'm bathing? But the poem usually doesn't care and quips, too bad, Hafiz, no getting lazy. <laughs> you promised God you would help out. And he just came up with this new tune. <laughs> So uh, I always preach because it's, it's such a deep concept of it's not convenient to be called, and, you know, like, you know? <laughs> right. and it's like the poem did care, right? So because right. like when you get a calling, you have a calling. So if you don't want to be the person that does that, please support the people that do mm. and hold them up because it's painful, you know, getting hatred spewed at you 24-7, you know, reading the comments on most Pittsburgh-related media outlets gets like, that's a lot for people over a period of time. Yeah. I and, recommend not reading the comments. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always fall into <laughs> that track because yeah. I want to I follow everything that's far right because I want to understand what yeah. people are saying but it's really yeah. you know sometimes it's just like ah oh, it drains everything yeah. you have right so then if you're not going to do that if you're not going to put yourself in that position right. be there for people who do You actually, in the past year, you and while you were at the Islamic Center, and since I think still, have supported a wide range of other communities. You've engaged with those other communities that are fighting for, for liberation, and you've backed legislation that restricts access to guns, supported equality for the LGBTQ community, marched with protesters following the shooting of Antoine Rose Jr., and the trial of the man that took his life. First of all, how do you find the time and energy to do that? <laughs> and, and second of all, do you get pushback from your own community for being so focused on other communities? It's really interesting because if you ask the average person in my center, a lot of people actually don't know anything about what I do. You know? yeah. Like they know generally that they hear stuff on TV and see it, but they see me as the person who's cleaning up after the community dinners, that's setting up the you know child's like education class on Sundays. You know, yeah. like I'm the person they call when they need to get a resource source for somebody or housing or food or, you know, like we don't have that many staff. I just fill in roles. I, mean, I spent as much time cleaning floors as I did doing press conferences, right? Mm. More time cleaning floors, you know, but like that's why a lot of that came on my own personal time, you know, yeah. like all these movements, all these volunteering and, and doing this activism, you know, I kind of yeah. did it when I had the time and then in a time where things are so difficult, it's great to jump into work and jump into the movement and try to do every waking second trying to make a difference because it makes me feel better and I can actually sleep at night if I'm exhausted. <laughs> so that helps me. I want to touch on something because I know it's important to you and I want to ask this delicately, but even before the Tree of Life incident had happened, you had already known in your heart that it was time to move on to something else. And what was that like for you? How, what were you thinking in that time? One of my favorite quotes is that the mark of a true leader is that when the work is done, his work is finished, that the people will say we did it ourselves, right? right? And I have not been able to get to a level of leadership that I could really do that well enough so that I became too quickly the region's token Muslim guy, yeah. too much space that I took up in Muslim leadership. Yeah. And it kept going and I kept getting these awards and recognitions. Right. And it's good for our community that we get exposure, but it's me centric. And I didn't know what to do except for step away create space for all these other leaders to come up in yeah. it and be a quiet a volunteer and advisor and so I decided to leave 
extraordinarily selfless of you. It takes a healthy ego to see through all of that. I can't imagine was easy. Now you're the director of community entrepreneurship with Forward Cities, right? Is that Pittsburgh director, yeah, yeah. Pittsburgh director. What are you doing there? To me, I wanted to transition to economic justice, mm-hmm. and this is my way of doing it. Forward Cities is a national capacity building and learning network, mm-hmm. and we focus on building the entrepreneurial ecosystem. You know, there's so much growth in Pittsburgh, but it's not being experienced by our people of color. It's not being experienced by particular marginalized communities that we're not experiencing that growth before. So my new job for the next two years is studying that entrepreneurial ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Understanding where the gaps are, you know, and working with our Mellon and Hillman Foundation to create programs and initiatives in order to fill those gaps so that people of color can properly rise up and take advantage. You know, in some respects, the United States is going through a period where we are genuinely experimenting with trying to create something new. And I'm not talking about right now under this administration. This is a period of retrenchment. But we've been on a journey where we are creating a multifaceted, multidimensional, multi-ethnic, multi-religious people gathered around representative democracy. And clearly, that's without precedent in the history of the world in the way that we're trying to do it, the scale we're trying to do it. Is it an environment that can allow for the sort of grace that you're calling for and describing? I think that because of how our media currently functions, our worst voices are getting the most time. (laughs) And I feel like generally the American public, I, I think better of them. I think that grace exists. I think we just have to be you know, more responsible and and how we engage with the larger public and find new ways to do that and not such a sensationalist way to do it. People anticipated our country to face this. Jefferson said that there will come a time when our country will, you know, manifest itself in a direction that goes towards degeneracy, right? Mm -hmm. And that in those times, he truly believed that the will and the watchfulness of the rest of the people who are better than that, Mm. you know, will lead to us actually removing the aberration. So then that was a quote from, like, there's a paraphrase quote, but that was what he said, you know, at the very beginning of this country, that these things will test our democracy, they'll test our country, right? But we have the resolve to face it. We are inclined towards love and and positivity and and not this hatred and fear, Mm. right? We want to feel safe and we want to feel like we're all brothers and sisters. That's what we want, you know, in our nature. So then I truly believe that. I think that the grace exists. I think that the grace has been removed by these programmed narratives that we have in our heads and minds. So we need to work to break that down, to return that grace to the conversation, or else we can't talk. You know, we can't communicate. Mm. We can't move forward. And I feel like I see how uncomfortable people are. It doesn't matter what policies you believe in. It's disgusting. You know, like it's right. really horrible what's happening. And it's not great on any side, you know, what's going on. And we're not going down a great path. And I think that our nature as Americans will cause us to bounce back. Well, see, with all due respect to your parents, who clearly <laughs> did a good job of raising you, I hope that you will continue your life of public service and working for a community because we're lucky to have you. The name of this program is We Can Be, which is meant to evoke a sentiment about what our guests believe is possible and what our listeners believe is possible. How would you end the statement, We Can Be? We Can Be what? We can be different but united. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much. 
Wasi spoke of the Muslim concept of seed and soil, that at birth our hearts, the seed, are pure, and the soil we grow in makes all the difference. If the soil around us is poisonous, the seed will grow up poisoned. That concept gives understanding to the work that so many do as they try to make certain that all of us have the opportunity to grow in healthy, loving soil. Hatred is not always deep-rooted. As Wasi said, when we know just one Muslim, when we know just one person who is different from us, it becomes harder to hate. Even Wasi acknowledges how sometimes it is inconvenient to be called to do this work, where the poet tries to say, not now, in response to the calling. But the response comes clearly, too bad. You promised God you would help, and he just came up with this new tune. Wasi is someone who has certainly had a calling and answered that call. He is using his gifts, his intellect, his voice, his being to help make our soil healthy so more seeds, more of us, can grow to their full caring, understanding, and deeply human potential. One of my favorite poems by the poet Hafiz is called Dropping Keys, and in it he writes that the small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to stoop when the moon is low, goes about dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. In an era of small men, small-mindedness, and cage builders, we are called to be sages, to be liberators, and Wasi's work points the way. Thank you.